Heavenly Father, I pray the Spirit, Father, would speak through me and into the hearts of those who hear, communicating your truth, Father, even if it be necessary to use words different than the ones I choose. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would continue in this coming semester to be good students, careful listeners, and, and watchful teachers, Father. And in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome back. Back to Isaiah. Chapters 18 and 19 and 20 tonight. I think I, I have to start by reminding you the pattern that Isaiah began in chapter 13. A pattern that we go all the way to chapter 23 with. And a pattern I mean he's following a similar style with each new piece. And it follows roughly like this. There are neighboring nations that have historically been enemies of Israel. God has the desire to pronounce through Isaiah judgment on each of these nations, one after another, in turn. But as we started studying them, if you remember Babylon was the first, and then we moved to Moab and so on, with each of these new enemies, a pattern began to emerge as Isaiah addressed each one. He would speak about near-term consequences, something that was, relatively speaking, near to Isaiah's day in terms of time, And it was a moment that was coming upon these nation-states as judgment against them for their treatment of Israel. And there were judgments of various kinds. And in most cases already, we've been able to find in history what historical event actually fulfilled those prophecies. But then as we studied, you, you may remember, we started to notice that there was often a deeper meaning. Or another way I put it was, There was the simple line of reasoning, the simple line of teaching that came out of each of these accounts. Then there was a a, a more subtle, deeper meaning that was also involved, kind of a double meaning. That deeper meaning referred to a prophetic event that was much further in the distance from Isaiah. And it was not to to speak about how these nations were judged. It was a pattern or a, a topic used to explain how God would come back and deal with the world as a whole. It dealt with tribulation at times, or in other cases, Jesus' return, or the Messianic kingdom. There were all these larger themes buried in the discussion that Isaiah presented about each of these neighboring nations. So if you read through it casually, you get the first meaning easily enough. What happened to Philistine? What happened to Moab? What happened to Babylon? But of course, with further study, we saw it wasn't just that. It was also what's going to happen to the world as a whole, even future to today. And once we saw the pattern emerge, we started watching for it, or at least that's what we should be doing, looking for it with each new country. What is the main meaning? And then what's the cool secondary meaning that we're all waiting to find? And then one other little facet came to light as we went through these. We noticed that at the conclusion of each nation's state, there was a kind of message there, if you sum up what he says about each nation, a kind of message that almost formed words in a sentence, if you think of it that way, where once I learn something about Babylon, and then I take what I learned about Moab and about Philistine, I kind of stretch them all out one after another, and it starts telling a story about something, like pieces of a puzzle, I said. Well, we have several pieces. I'll remind you of some of them now, and then we'll see what more developed tonight. Tonight's one of the most fascinating, I think, of everything we've covered so far. So Babylon, the first we studied. Forgetting for a moment all the near-term prophetic meaning, the simple meaning, we'll deal, we don't need to repeat those. What was the underlying, more significant meaning out of Babylon? Babylon was a message of Satan, or the enemy in general, and his forces, all together, wrapped up, that they are going to go down in flames. That they will be defeated in the end, but Israel will rise from ashes. That was the summing up meaning of the story of Babylon. Moving to Philistine, 
That taught us that the throne of David will rise again, even if it appears to have faded for a time. And when it rises again, it crushes all opposition. There is no other authority in the world to contend with the throne of David once it reemerges on the earth, reappears on the earth. Third, Moab. Moab taught that the Lord will offer refuge to a small remnant of Israel's enemies, the Gentiles to be specific. And these Gentiles will be shepherded or sheltered, I guess I should say, sheltered in Israel, in their shadow, so to speak, and ultimately will share in their kingdom when the kingdom arrives on earth in Christ. And then lastly, with Moab, we learned if God is willing to offer some mercy to the Gentiles, he is equally willing to hold Israel accountable and will bring judgment against Ephraim, which we know ultimately is the dispersal of the northern kingdom. That was the first three. So begin to line those out. These, these seem to be little nuggets or pieces to a puzzle that are filling out our understanding of how God will bring this age to conclusion. And that may be the way you envision the picture on the box. What is it going to be like when this age comes to conclusion? You've got three pieces already. Now, let's look at the next, starting in chapter 18. It's about Cush, which is the ancient name for what nation today? Nope. Close. Ethiopia. This is Ethiopia. Isaiah 18, verse 1. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. Go, swift messengers, to a nation, tall and smooth, to a people, feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it, and as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. I could easily finish the chapter, but I'm going to stop there just for the moment. So, in knowing we want to find our pattern again as we study the details here, uh, the, probably the first thing to ask is, what country are we talking about? And I've already said that Cush is Ethiopia, but you may have noticed something in the text that caused you to question whether that's the correct interpretation. And by that I mean verse 2. Verse 2 said, the land beyond the rivers of Cush. In fact, that's led some. I was looking at Calvin's commentary on Isaiah, and he had looked at that verse and come to the conclusion this must be some unknowable land that lies out past Ethiopia because of this reference to a land beyond the rivers of Cush. Now, Ethiopia is divided by two principal rivers. They are the Blue Nile and another river at Baro. Both of those rivers are in the far northeast corner of the country, though. And if you look at the geography of that part of the world, uh, you have to remember that this is being written by a Jew to Jews. So they're looking at this you know, beyond the river reference geographically from the point of view of someone in Israel, right? So as they're sitting in Israel, and if it were possible to look over the horizon and see Ethiopia, if you stare at that location from Israel, you're looking at south, uh, southwest from Israel. And if you were to look a line on a map, the first thing you see on that line of sight is the northeast corner of Ethiopia. And then beyond that, the rest of Ethiopia. Well, what rivers divide 
Ethiopia, as you look over them from Israel's point of view, they divide what you see from the rest of Ethiopia. In other words, here's Israel. Africa comes down like this. Ethiopia sits down here. If you're looking here or looking down, here's where those rivers are. What would the land beyond the rivers be? Ethiopia. This is clearly talking about Ethiopia. You can see elsewhere, by the way, if you look at, I mean, there's multiple places, but I'll give you just one reference. Psalm 68, 31 refers to this same place, and in most translations, it's actually translated Ethiopia. Yours may do that. So I'm not quite sure why sometimes we use Cush and sometimes we use Ethiopia. It's the same word in Hebrew. So, this is Ethiopia. Verse 2 also describes the people of the land. They are seagoing. This is true to history. The Ethiopians were a seafaring people. They had, they had a very distinctive style of ship. And what made it so distinctive was the sails were multiple small sails. And from a distance, when you looked at the ship, the sails looked like wings on an insect uh, to a certain degree. And that's the reference, as you see, the beginning of this passage I just read, where it says, whirring wings. It's a reference to their sails. Some have also said it could reference the fact that Ethiopia was famous for their uh, tsetse flies and the swarms that used to descend upon the land. It could be either one. I find it more likely to refer to the vessels that go in the water because that's the next thing you see in verse 2. They seem to be connected. But either way, that's consistent with Ethiopia. Then they talk about in verse 2, those who were tall and smooth. Now, remember, from a Jewish man's perspective, Ethiopians were smooth. Very low amount of body hair compared to what is classically the case for Semites. And they're tall. Genetically, uh, Ethiopians are relatively tall people. They still are. So, tall and smooth is a reference to the people. Powerful and feared is a, cla- is a reference to the nation. That was their historic role. Uh, Josephus, in fact, identifies Ethiopia as the kingdom that Sheba was from. Queen of Sheba, who visited Solomon. Josephus, and more than a few other references, equate Sheba to Ethiopia. So, she- Ethiopia was powerful enough that the queen would travel all the way to find Solomon and bring quite a bit of uh, wealth with her. So it was a powerful, wealthy nation, and it was uh, one that was feared because of its power. Now, Isaiah says in verse 3 that there will be a signal or a standard. A standard is another word for like a banner or a flag. Raised on the mountains, and every human on earth will see it. Everyone on earth will see it. And then following that, the Lord will emerge from his dwelling place quietly... That's shakat in the the Hebrew, shakat, but the word is equally translated to grant relief. It can mean quiet, but it can also mean to grant relief. So you could argue that the Lord has, uh, in verse 4, I will look from my dwelling place to grant relief. That's an equally likely translation. And in the process of him making this move out of his dwelling place, he appears like a dazzling hot sunshine. Or like a refreshing cloud. All right, now these are puzzling verses, are they not? And I say puzzling because even if we try, if we try to make sense of them in a very simple, uh, contemporary fashion, what did, what did it mean to Isaiah? How did this actually take place against Ethiopia? You were already struck with things that don't make sense, like verse 3. How can all the people in the world see some kind of sign associated with the destruction or the judgment of Ethiopia? And... What is this about the Lord himself personally leaving his dwelling place? 
Well, I want you to consider some other verses in Scripture. I could take you to a lot. I'm going to try to hone it to just a few that are that will hopefully cover the, the bases for us here. If you care to turn, you can. Otherwise, uh, just listen. It's Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 14. And I'll start in verse 5. The context of Zechariah 14, Christ's return. Verse 5, speaking to Israel, he says, You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of, my, of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the east and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And then holding that thought, listen to three other verses, four other verses. This now from Revelation 19.11. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Taking those verses, and there are several other places like that I could go to reinforce the same point, but looking now at verse 3 again in Isaiah 18, a worldwide sign something that the entire world can see in the same moment, is consistent with the one referenced in Zechariah 14 and actually repeated in Revelation 19. That sign being Jesus' return itself, a light so bright that the whole world sees it. And in fact, there's no other source of light in the universe at that moment, so you can't help but see it. It's night, but then there's light. But it's neither day nor night because there's no more sun to tell you when it's night or day anymore. In other words, if I turn the sun off and all the stars with it, what time of day is it? just dark. But then all of a sudden a light appears as Jesus returns. How can you not notice it? That's the way he's going to return. And Zechariah 14 gives us a part of that. There's other verses as well that cover the same moment. That would seem consistent with both verses 3 and 4, wouldn't it? A standard raised on the mountains, you will see it. And then the whole reference to a trumpet is blown. We know that Christ's return is accompanied by trumpets, as Paul tells us elsewhere in the New Testament. And then verse 4, the Lord... Look from his dwelling place to provide relief. Potentially that means provide relief. And it's compared to the dazzling heat in the sunshine and a cloud of dew. The sun shining, you know, this, this could obviously be a reference to the light of Christ in the sky. The cloud, you know, I look at it one of two ways. We hear Hebrews talking about the assembled body of Christians who have gone before us in death as what? A cloud of witnesses. But we also know that Jesus' return establishes living waters that flow out of Jerusalem. Maybe that's what he means by a cloud of dew, like heat in the harvest. That Jesus' arrival is like refreshment in that sense. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can see the imagery to confirm what we know elsewhere the Scripture says. But taking it as a whole, it seems intriguing to, to suggest, at least at this point, that Isaiah seems to have gone not so much directly at the simple discussion, but have skipped that and jump down to the secondary meaning right away. That maybe the whole thing is a discussion about that. But maybe not. Let's hold that thought and see where it goes next. 
Verse 5, For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them, and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. All right, consider timing here for a moment. Let's see if we can narrow down what these events refer to in terms of time. For example, verse 5, it says all of this will happen as when buds are blooming and branches are spreading, and it mentions grapes specifically. And not so much the grape. If you notice it carefully, it's actually talking about the grape flowers, the flowers of a grape vine, but not yet are there grapes. Now, grapes are a picture, grape vines are often a picture in Scripture of what? Fig trees and grapes are used interchangeably for Israel. Knowing that, let me remind you of a verse out of Matthew 24. Matthew 24:32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all, the, all these things, recognize he is near right at the door. Now, knowing what Matthew 24 is talking about in its context is obviously important to using it here. So I have to give you that context just briefly. Jesus is asked in that part of Matthew about the timing of his return. And in the course of a longer discussion, he uses this one parable to help answer the question of how will you know when Jesus is coming back? He says, learn from the parable of the fig tree. And we know the fig tree, not just here, but throughout Scripture, is used to reference the nation of Israel. He makes the point that when the nation of Israel reemerges, much like when a tree, after it's dormant in the winter, and appears to even to be dead. Suddenly, when spring comes around, it shows leaves again, and you know it didn't die. Politically, or, or from the standpoint of Israel, the nation, until it reemerged in 1948, people thought it was dead. And then it reemerged, like a tree bringing forth its leaves again. Jesus says, like when you see leaves on a tree, you know it's not going to be long before there's fruit. Similarly, in making a parallel with Israel, when you see Israel reemerge on the world stage, what is the conclusion a Christian should come to? He is near, right at the door. If I'm correct in drawing a, a comparison between figs and grapes, then it would suggest that in verse 5 of Isaiah 18, that the timing of these events seems to be connected to the blossoming of a grape vine. Then you look at what comes from that. He says, I'm going to cut off the sprigs, cut off the spreading branches. The imagery here is one of a premature pruning. Do you prune a tree in spring right after everything's budded? Not if you want fruit. There's this principle, this sense here from an agricultural point of view that the pruning is a shock. It's a surprise. All of a sudden everything's going. You think we're on the right track and all of a sudden it's pruned and then you're not ready for it. So the image here is one of an unexpected event. When you did not expect it, God pruned the, the, the branches. Let me take you to Matthew 24 again. Just two verses later, verse 36, speaking again of the day of Christ's return, Jesus says this, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. 
For in the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And by the parallels that Jesus draws, it's obvious he's saying the nature of the return is such that no one knows it's coming except when it shows up. It surprises the world. And I think that's exactly the point being made in Isaiah 18.5. Israel's blossomed. They've bloomed. That's a sign in itself, as Jesus says. And then, unexpectedly, it's pruned, if you will. The world is put into shock by Jesus' return. They're not ready for it. They're not expecting it, just like the days of Noah. And now in verse 6, he gets to the meat of the judgment. He says, They are left for the birds to feast on them over an entire summer. Ringing any bells? How about Revelation 19 again, verse 15? I'm going to read several verses here to put it in its context. Speaking about Jesus, John writes, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that, he, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then, finally... In the verses I read out of Isaiah, a strange turn at the end. The last thing you're told is these same tall, smooth people from this same place, from Ethiopia, instead of attacking Israel, what do they do? They go to Mount Zion to pay homage to Christ, to worship Him, which is clearly not what is likely to happen today or has ever happened for them. They come to Mount Zion in peace instead of as an oppressor. That's consistent with what period of time in Scripture? When will we see Gentile enemies of Israel streaming into Israel for the purpose of worshiping Christ at Mount Zion? The Millennial Kingdom. Now, I understand that one or two of my references may have seemed a stretch or a bit of a jump, but when you line them all up like that, doesn't it seem more credible that he's describing not the near-term consequences of some judgment for Ethiopia, but for whatever reason, he skipped over that And he's talking about the ultimate picture, the the secondary discussion, how God will return here again in the last days. Now, there is a fantastic chiasm in this chapter that confirms, I think, the interpretation I'm offering. Chiasms, do you remember that? A structure, a literary structure that takes us thought and drives to a point and then reverses all the thought and drives back out. And the the chiasm is the actual verse that is the juncture. This is a seven-verse chapter, so the the symmetry is perfect. And you'll see right away some of the detail I'm talking about. Look at verses 1 and 2. Wings, rivers dividing, tall, smooth men coming to attack Jerusalem. 
What would be the opposite of that? That's what a chiasm presents, remember? Whatever is true up here is repeated down here, but in an opposite fashion. Look at verses 6 and 7. Wings, rivers, dividing, tall, smooth men, but now coming to praise the Lord, not attack His people. Look at verse 3. A sign to the nations of Christ's arrival, as we discussed it. Verse 5. A sign to the world of His imminent return. And then verse 5, the chiasm, the juncture, Israel's blossoming again on the world stage. What, would you, what is the point of a chiasm? Right, it focuses you on a point, doesn't it? What is the principal time clock of Scripture for God's plan in, his, in, in the world? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the hourglass for God's plan. And he always marks events in his plan for the world according to Israel and its own history. And what better way then, if you're summing up Christ's return, than to focus your attention on the blossoming of Israel is the key to take note of. It's the key thing that we should all be paying attention to if we truly are interested in understanding God's plan for his return. He's right at the door. I mean, I don't know if that means this year, next year, next decade, but folks, right at the door has to mean right at the door. You don't say that and then have another 300 years of waiting, do you? Not when there's been 2,000 already. It seems like on the time scale he's been working on, right at the door would mean decades at best. That was 1948. How many more do we have? So it's a pretty exciting thing to see that. So what's our puzzle piece here? If we've come out of this now with that secondary meaning, we haven't seen the, the first level meaning. None of what I just read has any parallel in history. You cannot look at verses 1 through 7 and say, well, see, there must be some historical event that took place in Ethiopia that can be tied to some of these verses so that we get our double meaning. I'm sorry, there isn't. These verses seem to be limited at this point only to the secondary meaning. Now, I'll tip my hand here and tell you that chapter 20 will give us the other. But he waits to chapter 20 to give us the first level meaning, the true historical events for what happened to the nation of Ethiopia. But he's divided it out here. So... What's the puzzle piece we learn out of this secondary meaning? Babylon means the enemy and his forces are defeated, but Israel rises from the ashes. Philistine meant the throne of David rises again to crush all opposition. Moab meant that Gentiles will be included in God's plan, but God will hold Israel accountable for her disobedience. And then Cush, or Ethiopia, Israel's enemies will be transformed into nations that pay homage to Zion. It's not just that her enemies will be destroyed and some will be made a remnant, but those same nation states reestablished in the millennium become those who honor Israel, serve Israel, and honor Christ rather than those who would uh, do the opposite. So God turns all the nations that were once against Israel into Israel's servants, as he's promised to do. This is the, the puzzle piece for that part. Actually, they, were, they conducted four wars against Israel in the years of yeah, they, it's interesting, we don't think of them very much because they lie outside the key focus of what we think of the Middle East today. But in actuality, they were, they were probably the most feared enemy before the rise of Assyria and Babylon. They were the most feared enemy of Israel. They were the most powerful uh, aggressor. Them and Egypt, I guess. Well, um, prior to 741 B.C., let me put it that way, because in 741 B.C., they're, they're judged through God's um, decree, which we get to in chapter 20. So I can't give you an answer going back how far that is. I don't have all the dates on the wars. 
but the found, it goes back certainly to the founding of Israel because Queen Sheba is visiting Solomon. So there is a, there's an awareness of, from Ethiopia's point of view of the wealth and the power of Israel going back to Solomon. Okay, chapter 19. Next puzzle piece. And of course, I've already told you we come back to Ethiopia in chapter 20. Verse 1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight against his brother and each against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. And those who spread nets on the water will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. And the pillars of Egypt will be crushed and the, all the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. It's a bad time in Egypt, apparently. Uh, clearly this is Egypt. No need to explain that. Egypt has uh, a very detailed in, and rich involvement in Israel's past. I mean, you know many of the stories itself, of course. Uh, in fact, is, Egypt is so often used in Scripture as a picture of Israel's enemies that it has also become a picture of something even greater than itself. It, it's often used in Scripture as a picture of the unbelieving world as a whole. So, in other words, Egypt, in many ways, typifies Israel's enemies generally and is sometimes used in Scripture that way. It's most famous, of course, for oppressing the Israelites during the time of Moses. That goes almost without saying, I'm sure. But in later centuries, they were always a, a continuing threat to Israel, a continuing uh, problem for them. Uh, they, they initiated multiple wars against Israel over the history. And even today, I mean, you could argue even today, that's never changed. Now, not surprisingly, because of Israel's history, this oracle presents a much greater, much more specific set of judgments against that land than we've seen in the last couple we've read. And from the detail here, we're not thinking now about a sub-meaning at this point, at least. It looks like it's all very contemporary, uh, very un easily understood judgments that appear to come against the nation in some age close to Isaiah's day. And for the most part, that's true. Verse 1 here establishes that the uh, instigator is who? How does all this begin? God. Not a small point, because if you look down further in the details, you may begin to forget that fact. It begins to look like social upheaval. But the reality is, it is all, it's all instigated by God himself. Even though there are natural events, like civil war, they are still all triggered and controlled by God. If we had more time tonight, that's a great you know, preaching point all by itself. Even when things look like they are happening in the normal course of human history, as people would describe it, they're not. I mean, they're not apart from God, in other words. They're not outside His control and purpose. You'll, you'll notice as you look through the text even from verse 2 and onward how many times the word I shows up in the text. Just scan your eye. Every one of those is a reference to God. 
All right. Now, here's the problem, historically. Over the long history that Egypt existed as an empire, as a, as a kingdom, they experienced many civil wars. Uh, they had many cruel despots or, or pharaohs. And therefore, it's not easy to identify which one or ones are in view here. Uh, in fact, it's impossible. There's not enough detail here to know which one or ones he may be referring to. Uh, and in some of the other details, breaking down their social and religious pillars in society and so on, disrupting their natural resources. Now it starts to get a little odd because if you stopped it before he got to about verse 5, as I said, you'd just have general historical upheaval that could be assigned to one of multiple instances that we know happened in Egypt. But as 5 and 6 and 7 and go on, it starts to talk about stuff that, frankly, we don't have any record of. I mean, at least not in anything that's been preserved. I mean, the whole Nile drying up, there's no precedent for that that we know of. Uh, certainly not since Noah. You know, there's nothing that we could point to in modern history, certainly. The fact that you're going to have no ability to fish, and even to the point of chapter 19, verse 10, it would seem to suggest all the hired laborers are grieved. It almost suggests 100% unemployment. I mean, I don't know if that's literally what it means, but it, it, it means something we don't have historical parallels for at least not in anything that's been preserved. Look further. It gets worse in that regard. Look at verse 11. The princes of Zoan are mere fools, and the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you say, men, to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? Please, let them tell you, and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Israel astray, I'm sorry, Egypt astray in all that it does as drunken men staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. It appears from what he's written there that in response to all the calamity, Pharaoh did what pharaohs often do. They called the wise men to explain the circumstances. What is going on with Egypt? And God mocks their supposed wisdom. He calls them from two places, Zoan and Memphis, both major cities in southern Egypt. Historically, uh, Memphis at one point was the capital. So these are places where you would see these kind of wise men, I guess, and they're called to the court. God mocks them. He says, how are you supposed to understand why God is doing what he's doing? How is human wisdom supposed to arrive at any kind of explanation for what you're seeing go on? There is none. If you have it, let me hear it. You hear him mocking them in, his, in the way he phrases it. Then he turns it back, God turns it back on the leadership, and he says that the leaders themselves, in verse 13, are the ones to blame for all of this. They've led their people astray leading them into wars, I guess, leading them into idolatry one way or another. But look at verse 14. 14 begins to open up a clue as to what we've been looking at in this entire chapter. Verse 14 says, God purposely deluded and distorted their understanding so as to cause the nation to go even further astray. In other words, at the moment when wise men sought to explain to Pharaoh why things are falling apart, God actually stepped in once again and deluded the men, the wise men, so that whatever answers they gave Pharaoh sent Pharaoh even further off the track from the truth. It appears that he is starting to actively delude these people. Now, that's just fascinating, but it triggered in me 
a thought, a memory of something that started to put the whole chapter in a new context. It starts to open up some interesting parallels because of that one verse where he says, I send a deluding influence, a lie that causes them to go further off the truth. There's one other time in Scripture we're told God does that. Very unique thing if you think about it. When would God ever want to do that? What purpose would he ever have in doing that? Ezekiel, for example, covers this same event. Ezekiel covers it in chapter 29 of Ezekiel, verse 8. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon you a sword, and I will cut off from you man and beast. The land of Egypt will become a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said the Nile is mine and I have made it, therefore, behold, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal to Syene, and even to the border of Ethiopia. A man's foot will not pass through it, and the foot of a beast will not pass through it, and it will not be inhabited for forty years. So I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolate lands, and her cities in the midst of cities that are laid waste will be desolate forty years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. We've never seen that. There is no record in history of the entire land of Egypt. He didn't leave any of it out, right? He says from border to border. Empty for 40 years. No such thing in, in human recorded history. Let's go back to Isaiah. Chapter 19. Look at verse 16. In that day... Now, here's an interesting phrase we haven't heard him use yet in this chapter. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors and He will send them a Savior and a champion and He will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make Himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord and He will respond to them and will heal them. Isn't that remarkable? He uses that all-important phrase, in that day, in that day. And when we see this phrase, we typically would expect it to look forward to a prophetic day in some sense. But as you've seen already in Isaiah, it often has a very specific day in mind. And by day now, we don't mean 24-hour day. We mean a period, some short period. And that day is often what day? The day of the Lord, which we know means tribulation and the events that immediately follow as Christ returns. So let's look at the details we've studied so far to see if we recognize them to be that very same day that Isaiah has already talked about already, the day of tribulation or these day, this, this time around Christ's return. Let's see if some of the events line up if that's what we're looking at. First, he says, the Egyptians tremble in dread of Israel because, he says, on what God does on behalf of Israel, Judah becoming a terror to Egypt. Well, that's consistent with how we know Christ comes to respond to the cries of Israel and save them in the face of the Antichrist and the nations of the world seeking to attack them. 
Then we hear that five major cities of Egypt begin to speak the language of Canaan, which is Hebrew. That's a reference to Hebrew. And with Hebrew words, they swear an allegiance to the Lord, and one of their cities is even named City of Destruction, which can also be translated City of the Sun, by the way. And they set up altars to the Lord so they can sacrifice to Him. Most notably, of course, in verse 20, they cry out to the Lord to save them. He responds by sending them a Savior. God makes Himself known so that they will know Him, and then they worship and sacrifice. And then I love verse 22. God is striking them, but so as to deliver them ultimately, to heal them. So now we clearly see what day he's talking about here. It lines up nicely with the day of tribulation, a time of striking the nations, followed by the time of Christ's return and reigning in his kingdom. Now, he's not promising, of course, that every last man, woman, and child in Egypt is covered in the healing part. That's not the point. He's speaking about it nationally. So as a nation group of people, they're struck, and then for some number of them, as a nation, they come into the Messianic kingdom and continue on. So... A day when nations like Egypt are brought under judgment and then some Gentiles are saved to join the kingdom is a perfect reflection of what we know is going on in the last days. Now, with that understanding, go backwards to the verses we read at the first half of chapter 19. And you'll see something very fascinating in those verses. Remember how contemporary they sounded? They seem to be describing, you know, civil war in Egypt and despots taking charge. Not too uncommon, I'm sure. But now, what if the whole chapter is really in the same period of time? What if we've been reading about the same period of time this whole time, this, this time of tribulation? For example, when do rivers dry up in the judgments of tribulation? If you know Revelation, there's a period in which the rivers of the earth are dried up. Well, when do we see an evil despot taking rule over the world in an oppressive way? Called the Antichrist? Civil wars break out amongst the people. There's record of that in Revelation how about false prophets rising up to try to explain the calamities of tribulation as if anyone could explain it, right? And in response to that attempt, what does Paul say God does during those days? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, describing the events around Christ's return and specifically around the Antichrist, Paul says this, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Look at verse 11. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. A very, very nice parallel to what we hear going on in this other judgment in Isaiah. So if you compare the language I just read to the language in verse 14 of Isaiah, of chapter 19, it would appear that this civil war and this new oppressive ruler is a reference to the Antichrist. And then the deluding influence that's sent in response is the same one Paul talks about coming upon the world in that same period. Part of God's judgment on the nations. But you notice already from verse 22 in Isaiah, the ultimate purpose of all of his striking is to heal in the end. Not every man, woman, and child, but to heal the nations. Now let's finish 19. Three more verses. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. 
In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. If you take a map and you put those three countries on a map, what can you do? That's Israel. Where is Egypt? Right? Where is Assyria? Modern-day Iraq. Right? And the road he's referring to was a road at one point. In Roman times, we called it the Via Maris. It was a road that, Maris means sea, it was a road that connected Egypt through Israel and into Mesopotamia. Today, the road doesn't exist in the sense that this, this border is sealed and this border is sealed. You can't travel like that, as in the way they're saying here. Never mind the fact that you don't see Egypt, Assyria, and Israel all chumming together in one big happy family, right? That seems not consistent with anything we've ever seen either. So this is obviously not something that's ever happened. But there is to be a day, some point in the future, when there's a road established of sorts, which is a way of saying a connection that lets free travel and, and, and fellowship take place. I mean, you could have picked any countries, right? You have Philistine over here. You've got Moab down here. I mean, why did he pick these three? Because the visual is so perfect. What connects this country with this country in fellowship? How is it even possible they could find fellowship because of this one? Salvation is of the Jews. It's God's inheritance. It is for the Jewish nation that we all have opportunity, or from the Jewish nation that we all have opportunity to be a part of the kingdom. So it's just a nice visual way of illustrating we're all connected to Israel. He even uses that language, right? He says, In that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The center, if you will. So, so what have we learned just so far? There's still a couple of loose ends, I'm sure, in some of your minds. There should be anyway, because you have chapter 19 talking about, is, about Egypt, but here we go again, it's not contemporary. The whole chapter is only looking at that second level again. It's only looking forward, right, to a picture of some end-time event. In this case, it's a picture of how these nations, of how Egypt itself, will experience the tribulation, but then come into the kingdom. And we still have that reference I read out of Ezekiel where there's 40 years where no one's living in Egypt. Well, if you go back to Ezekiel, I think you get the last piece you need to put it together. Back in Ezekiel 29, verse 13. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will turn the fortunes of Egypt and make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself above other nations. I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations, and it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. That's Ezekiel 29:13-16. In other words, who is he making a point to in the way he's treating Egypt here. Verse 16 says, Egypt will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel. Where did people go when they doubted God's provision in Israel? Egypt. You had Abraham doing it. You have Israel obviously going there in, in Joseph's day. And then going forward even into Isaiah's day, the kings of Isaiah's day often tried to align themselves with Egypt. And in fact, at one point, remember, they were looking south to Egypt to protect them against Assyria. Well, God is upset at the fact that they keep looking to Egypt, which is a picture of what? The sinful world. For their confidence. 
And so he says in the kingdom, in the, 40, in the messianic kingdom, in the time when they are restored as a nation and Israel is the chief nation, he first leaves Egypt outside their own land for 40 years, the first 40 years of the millennial. It has to be in the millennial because they have to be in their land to suffer what happens during tribulation. They're there when the Nile dries up. So it has to be after tribulation, which means the first 40 years of the millennial kingdom, God lets some Egyptians by faith enter into the kingdom, yes, but where do they have to live? How ironic that the place Israel used to go in exile from their land, 40 years in the desert, is the time period that God makes the Egyptians live outside their land, maybe even in parts of Israel. After he's made a point through 40 years of them being in exile, he lets them back in, but they remain the single most lowly nation on earth, not as punishment against them, because after all, who does, what does it matter to them how big they are? Right? God's ruling the nations anyway. No one's taking charge of anyone else, no matter how big you are. He even says what the point is in verse 16, so that Israel will make sense of this. Israel will learn never to look at Egypt again as the source of their confidence. He says, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. But he says, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. A point's being made to Israel by how he puts Egypt outside their own land for 40 years and then brings them back in a lowly state. What's a puzzle piece for Egypt? Remember, the puzzle pieces, as I've described them, have always come out of the secondary meaning anyway. We have the secondary meaning in chapter 19. We don't have the primary meaning. We don't have the, the short-term consequence yet, but that's okay. The puzzle always came out of the second one anyway. So what's the puzzle piece for Egypt? The healing of this nation is not without consequence for their sins against Israel. As a nation group, God is not above using them, for example, in, in purpose, even into the kingdom. And though there are going to be healing available to Israel's enemies, that doesn't mean that their prior behavior and Israel's use of them in, in sin doesn't have some consequence into the kingdom. That the kingdom itself has a structure and a, and a meaning to it that God has determined. It's not clouds and harps and everybody's the same and there's no distinction. There's a real complexity to who is there and why and how it's structured so that God can continue making influence in his world, communicating to, the, to his creation. It fleshes out, if you will, the nature of those days in a, in a very interesting way. So that would be the puzzle piece for Egypt. Let's quickly look at chapter 20, and I mean quick, because it's going to show you just the historical first-level understanding for both Ethiopia and for Egypt, but it's quick and fairly straightforward. It's just history. Verse 1, In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Who is the we? Israel. What was God's complaint, if you will, in Ezekiel about Israel and Egypt? Israel was relying on Egypt when they shouldn't have. 
Here you see the contemporary, the near-term prophetic consequence for both Egypt and Cush. And now you also see why Isaiah waited to capture both of them and put them in their own little chapter at the end because they suffer under a common fate. And that, of course, is Assyria. In 711 B.C., Egypt began encouraging one of those Philistine nation-states, those cities, those five cities that made up Philistia. One of them was Ashdod, if you remember. Egypt, you know, coward's trick, right? Egypt said to Ashdod, hey, why don't you rebel against Assyria? We'll send help, don't worry. Well, Ashdod rebelled, got crushed, and Egypt not only did not help them, they turned them over to Assyria kind of as an offering, hoping it would stop the Assyrians from coming any further south. In the midst of that political turmoil, Israel aligned themselves with Egypt and with Ethiopia, who had also aligned and promised to be part of a threesome to combat Assyria. Well, through Isaiah here in chapter 20, he speaks to the nation of Israel, does it in this really unique way. He tells Isaiah, go naked for three years. Boy, there's a great preaching in there somewhere, and I just don't know it. But it's literal, so you have to wonder what that must have been like, not just for Isaiah, but for everyone else. And it's just an interesting way. He tells you that God is is without limits in his ability to communicate. And this is the way he chose to, because it was such an obviously graphic way to portray what those Israel had put their confidence in, we're going to see happen to them. So, so who was shamed by that event? Well, on simple terms, Isaiah was shamed. It was very shameful. You couldn't have been more shameful in their culture to do what he did. But in pictorial terms, whose shame is he demonstrating? Israel's. For, for their willingness to trust the wrong things instead of God. So he becomes a graphic testimony of shame. How often do we get called to do things we wouldn't want to do for whatever reason, humiliation and the like? Boy, until he asks you to do that, you've got nothing to complain about. Uh, and if he does ask you to do it, check with me first. So, what's the near-term prophetic consequence? What judgment are we talking about historically? Well, obviously in 711, you had that offer that Egypt made to Ashdod. Ashdod did it. By 714, three years later, Assyria rolled in and crushed Philistia, Philistia or Ashdod specifically, and in successive decades, eventually completed the process of capturing not only we know Ephraim, you know, northern Israel, sieging Jerusalem, and then came down and also just uh, took over and seized both Egypt and ultimately Ethiopia. So that was the near-term response or consequence that God presented through Isaiah to these nations. Next week, we come back. 13 and 14, if you remember, was Babylon. We never saw a near-term prophetic consequence for Babylon when we studied chapters 13 and 14. It was all looking to the Antichrist, and looking to the Babylon that was destroyed in the time of tribulation. Well, all this time we've been waiting to get the other piece, the near-term prophetic consequence. We get that in chapters 21 and 22. Think about it. Babylon gets four chapters, and it kind of sandwiches everything else. It tells you something about how important Babylon is in God's point, from God's point of view. Then following that, we get Tyre, which was a Phoenician city. Father, thank you, Lord, for the time we had tonight, and I do thank you that... In the course of this study, we can uh, find so much in the depth of your word. Father, I know that study of your word can often become academic, I guess, for lack of a better term. We can focus on the words and on the meaning and the history and never stop to ask ourselves, with all that you've done in revealing yourself through your word, what is it that you would call us to do with it? I pray, Father, that what we've learned tonight would not remain simply an academic thought in our head, but would become a reason to live differently in our life and a 
chance to witness in some new way. I pray we would uh, see that as well. And then uh, in the week to come, Father, let us be that light and salt with what we know. And bring us back. We pray, Father, we could continue in our study. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.